0: Welcome to the KrocCast. Peace Studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Today's episode is the third in a series of four episodes hosted by Professor Mary Ellen O'Connell, focusing on themes laid out in her 2019 book, The Art of Law in the International Community. Mary Ellen is the Robert and Marian Short Professor of Law and a research professor of international dispute resolution. In this episode, she talks with Maria Stefan, director of the Program on Nonviolent Action at the United States Institute of Peace.
1: It's wonderful to be here today at the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies on the edges of the Croc's wonderful conference on sustainable peace. We have the opportunity to speak with one of our invited guests for that conference, Maria Stefan. I've been a great admirer of Maria's work for many years, and I can't tell you how appreciative I am that she's taken some of her time to speak with me about the intersection of the work we're both doing. In the interest of peace, I want to talk with her particularly about Chapter 5 of my book, The Art of Law in the International Community. That chapter has to do with restricting the right of states to intervene from outside into a conflict situation in another state under the doctrine of intervention, but also it looks at restricting the idea that people can organize as non-state actors in armed rebellion against their governments. I think this conversation is going to follow so well from the previous two that we have. Maria is well known for her empirical work on internal conflict situations And the last conversation I had was with Sam Moyne. Our conversation was heavily theoretical and historical. Before that, I talked with George Lopez, one of the leading practitioners and teachers of the art of peace studies. So we've gone from the practical to the historical and theoretical, and now to the empirical. Maria, why don't we begin by my asking you to tell our listeners a little bit more about your work.
2: Sure. Well, thank you very much, Mary Ellen, and congratulations on your book. The chapter that I read, Chapter 5, was very provocative and very interesting. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, you know, my research has focused on the phenomenon of civil resistance. So civil resistance is a way for ordinary people to wage conflict without the threat or use of violence. It involves the use of nonviolent direct action tactics like boycotts, strikes, vigils, protests, demonstrations. A whole range of different tactics as a means of shifting power in a conflict without the threat or use of violence. And so, just over a decade ago, when Erica Chenoweth and I met, the prevailing wisdom was that the most effective way to wage struggle against formidable opponents, whether they were violent dictatorships, authoritarian regimes, was through armed struggle. And that, you know, violence may not always work. But it must be more effective than nonviolence or nonviolent struggle. So at that point, Erica and I decided, well, why don't we fundamentally test this question? And let's be able to answer the question, which form of struggle, violent or nonviolent, has historically been more effective at achieving major political goals, like in challenging incumbent regimes or challenging foreign military occupations. So we spent the next two years basically collecting data on all known violent and nonviolent campaigns from 1900 to 2006. And that's data that's been since updated through 2015. And so again, these were violent and nonviolent campaigns that were maximalist in nature. So they were challenging political regimes, or they were vying for territorial self-determination or secession. As part of this research, and we were scouring all known bibliographies, data sets of armed conflicts. And at that time, there were no, you know, big data sets of nonviolent campaigns. So we were kind of piecing together, you know, information from many different sources, biographies and the like. And so to be included in the data set, the campaign needed to feature at least 1000 observed participants, it needed to be a campaign, so a sequence of tactics to achieve a stated goal. And it needed to bring about the desired change within one year after the end of the peak campaign. And so probably the most surprising finding of the research was, that the nonviolent campaigns succeeded twice as often as the armed campaigns so the nonviolent resisting campaigns so everything from you know you think about you know the ouster pinochet in chile or you know anti apartheid struggle or the nonviolent revolutions in central eastern europe or the philippines people power so these type of resistance campaigns succeeded about 53% of the time compared to 26% of the time for the violent campaigns and we We also did not find that there were any structural variables like regime type or military power of the regime that seemed to influence the emergence or outcomes of these campaigns. So not only was nonviolent resistance twice as effective as armed struggle, we also found that there was a very strong correlation between nonviolent resistance and democratization. Whereas armed struggles, which succeeded about 25% of the time in our data, so they were Able to succeed in about a quarter of the cases, they very rarely, less than 4% of their successes, led to democratic governments. Whereas nonviolent campaigns were almost 10 times more likely to result in democratic governments compared to armed struggle. So there's a very strong link between civil resistance and democratization, and also a strong link between civil resistance and civil peace. So nonviolent campaigns were much less likely to relapse into civil war or armed struggle compared to violence campaigns, which did that quite often. So both in the short term, we found that, you know, notwithstanding the prevailing wisdom at the time, civil resistance was twice as effective at achieving its ultimate goals in the short term. And then over the longer term, there were beneficial effects of waging struggle nonviolently.
1: Maria, our work overlaps directly at that point where you said the prevailing wisdom was that armed struggle is what it takes to achieve these better outcomes. And I was seeing that from the perspective, that argument from the perspective of international law, people telling me that the prohibition on the use of force had to be disregarded, had to be weakened, diluted, because we there was a necessity to use armed struggle in order to achieve better governments, governments that would not commit atrocities against their people, suppress them, oppress them. And when your work came out and I was able to say, this argument of necessity just doesn't work. It doesn't work as a matter of legal theory, of proper interpretation, because one political scientist's view that this is a necessity does not change an ancient peremptory norm like the prohibition on the use of force. But that argument was not getting through to people in this post-Cold War period when the prohibition on the use of force, which neither the superpowers wanted to back off of because they were using it in their competition with the other one. Once that competition was over, lots of people with great influence within the government were bringing these ideas that we had to be proactive. And I'm talking about a lot of different governments, not just the United States, although we were a leader, of course, and having NATO at our disposal, these arguments became a real challenge to international law and to preserving the international legal principles prohibiting the use of force. So I'm, I'm truly grateful for your work. And I, I want to also pay you the compliment that I think probably the more provocative part of this chapter is the view not only that military force in intervention is prohibited by this ancient norm, the prohibition on the use of force, but first resort to force by people within states, that we're really those who would encourage organizing among non-state actors against their government are doing something that violates the prohibition on the use of force. Your work and mine now are taking, of course, quite different points. I'm finding that that is prohibited by the international law on the use of force. You found that this is a very unwise idea. There's actually a, a legal doctrine, even if it were not prohibited by international law, if there was a right to resort to force by people within states, you would still have to show that there was a necessity to do so. And your empirical work has been excellent in terms of helping me make the argument that even if there was such a right, we see this evidence that you can't meet the requirement of necessity. The likelihood is you will be worse off after an attempt of this kind of armed struggle than before. You know, so I see your work as doing two things that are so important in reversing the idea that we both observed, this assumption that armed struggle is the only way or the best way or the true way if you're really committed to human rights, better government, and so forth. So there's there's a use in terms of your work in, in the legal substance and the analysis of the international law restricting the use of force. But this is what I'd love to talk with you more about now. Somehow your message got out there. So the context, people are now much more willing to listen to my explanation of what international law really requires because you have shown them the empirical data that, that this was a false assumption I'm wondering if you could share with me, because your work doesn't really look to international law. It hasn't been part of your own work. And I see this real problem. I think our work is synergistic, that we come to the same point, that we want to see alternatives, effective alternatives for people to improve their situations. But international law is not respected. Somebody who's got your background, your education. It wasn't something that you incorporated into your work. So I'd love to hear what you think is keeping the peace community, the nonviolent resistance community from looking to international law and seeing how
2: that can help what they're doing. So that's an interesting question. One of my three fields of study at the Fletcher School was actually international human rights law. But it's very true that the framework of analysis that we used was more coming from strategic theory, political science, contentious politics. So international law and international human rights law, you know, has not been, you know, kind of a framework of analysis. But you can't study nonviolent movements and civil resistance without having a full appreciation for international law and international human rights law. When you think about what nonviolent action is, it is collective action. It is assembly. It is association. It is boycotts. It is strikes. These are all protected under freedoms of expression, association, speech under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So in a way, movements and civil resistance breathe life into the whole human rights movement, I would say. So when it comes, the interesting thing about international intervention, and the reason why we may not perhaps have linked it, So clearly, till now, is that you know, nonviolent movements succeed largely because of the local indigenous skills knowledge know-how you know nonviolent resistance is how to wield power through non-cooperation refusing to pay taxes to give labor so protesting so it's all based on you know power that comes from the people from the community from collective action so it's a very kind of self-contained if you will action and so nonviolent movements compare to arm struggles are much less reliant on external support. So when you think about it, armed resistance movements need sanctuary, they need weapons, they need trainings. So they need all different types of outside support and intervention. Whereas for civil resistance, all of the power is coming through the actions of the movement members. And so, you know, outside support in the form of training and education, or in the forms of condemning rights abuses by the governments or the use of repression. So helping promote an enabling environment for nonviolent resistance, you know, sometimes being able to provide limited amounts of funding. This type of external support or intervention can help nonviolent movements. But in general, they're much less reliant upon that type of assistance compared to armed struggles. So that may be why there hasn't been as direct a link.
1: Except part of what has derailed some of these movements in the past from being peaceful movements has been this assumption that we both have pushed back on. And I have just been amazed at how easily Some, both in the political science, international relations, military strategy fields, international security fields, as well as international lawyers, have been willing to say, well, if we send weapons to people in Syria, we send weapons to people in Libya. Of course, Kosovo is the origin story of of so much of this argument, why we have to use military intervention. This is all outside, Mm -hmm. and it has hurt we, We know the Syria case, I think, you and I so well. It started out as a peaceful resistance movement. It got hijacked and wasn't some of that owing to this misunderstanding from outside parties and lobbying their governments. I'm thinking of Samantha Power, for example, in the United States, who lobbied the United States to intervene in Syria, even though that would have been clearly in violation of international law.
2: I mean, Syria is an incredibly difficult and tragic case. Um, And I was was actually in the State Department and working with Syrian activists about a year into the revolution, and so was able to observe and witness the the terrible kind of evolution of the struggle from, as you say, a nonviolent uprising to civil war, essentially. What I can say from the outset is that there was a strong belief and strong State Department U.S. government support for nonviolent activism and nonviolent resistance at the very beginning. And for the first six to eight months of the conflict, the embassy was tracking protests across the country. All of the language, the diplomatic language was supporting the right of peaceful protesters to protest. So the the inclination was to want the nonviolent resistance and the nonviolent protest to succeed. The challenge was that after about seven months of very violently repressed peaceful protest. And this cannot be forgotten. This was one of the most repressive, brutal regimes in the region. And so, you know, under any circumstance, you know, nonviolent resistance is difficult, particularly against this regime, it was going to be very, very difficult. And so the level of violence, the shooting, the snipers that were sent in the street, it was terrible. And so, you know, policy members were starting to hear from some of the activists, we can't be nonviolent anymore. It's not working. We need to do something else. And of course, as you say, there was also short-sightedness on the part of the policy community, you know, thinking that, you know, it would be more effective or that it would help the cause to take up arms. But it was was not quite as straightforward as just wanting to support armed resistance from the very beginning. But the challenge too was that, you know, we know from the research that the average duration of nonviolent campaigns is three years. And really the violence in Syria, from Free Syrian Army and beyond, you know, emerged and from other elements within six to seven months. And so it was a very short window for nonviolent resistance to be able to succeed. But the assumption that, you know, we would be able to A, protect ourselves And protect the community from regime violence by taking up arms, I think is where there was just, you know, it was the faulty assumption, because there's little or no evidence that taking up arms as a means of self defense actually protects civilians. And in fact, the evidence is quite to the contrary. We know that the vast majority of mass atrocities occur in the context of civil wars when governments respond to armed insurgencies. And so it's almost, you know, guaranteed to bring about more loss of life. But, you know, Syria is just a very difficult context because I would ask back, what was the role of international law and external actors in supporting the nonviolent activists and and the nonviolent movements before there was an escalation of violence. And where are those international norms to support nonviolent activism, to incentivize this method of struggle? Because sometimes struggle is necessary in these cases. And it's how that struggle is waged that is most important. So what is the role of outside actors to give incentive to that?
1: Well, let me say, of course, it wasn't just a U.S. problem vis-a-vis Syria we know that most of the weapons came very early from France, for example, and they were very interested in supporting anti-Assad forces. So part of the reason why this things went so badly so quickly in Syria is because while the U.S. was trying to maintain – some kind of support for nonviolent resistance in those first months. There were other players in the region who were already smuggling weapons in. Qatar was playing a very questionable role and so forth. But this goes to your question to me. International law should totally have had everybody on the same sheet of music. We should have had one clear, there is a clear international law prohibition on that kind of military assistance to non-government actors. And everyone should have been obeying that. But part of what is the post Cold War legacy is that international law, I think through a variety of just plain ignorance, through some hubris, other complicated reasons that I speak to somewhat in the book, just doesn't have its robust stature. It can't do the work it should be doing that you just mentioned, which is why I'm so interested in how your work has succeeded and really gaining people's attention. And and I think it has filtered through to a variety of movements as having true impact on the ground. So let's talk about if people like me are going to learn from you, how can we be more effective in getting the word about what are international law's common normative approaches, common legal principles for these most challenging of all human situations How do we get that word out? And then how do we ensure that it's accurate international law? This has been part of the problem. So let's talk a little bit about right to assist. I wanted actually to focus on the word right, Mm -hmm. because that's a legal term, and it's making me a little nervous. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Well, let's talk about it. Why don't you define what right to assistance is and how that was supposed to be, and I think it is, in many respects, a better approach than its predecessor, responsibility to protect, which I continue to call armed humanitarian intervention. But tell us about responsibility to assist, and then I will suggest where or indicate that I may have some concerns about that word right.
2: Yeah. No. So the right to assist is, you could say, a a nascent norm, I suppose, that's been the most clearly articulated by my colleagues, Hardy Merriman and Peter Ackerman at the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. And the idea of the right to assist, which is referencing the responsibility to protect. So it's kind of looking at R2P and acknowledging that particularly after the Libya intervention, the prospect of intervening on humanitarian grounds and that being, you know, embraced by the international community is not great, let's say. And if the purpose of R2P and the purpose of all of international law is to support, you know, less violence and a more peaceful international community. What can be done to proactively support alternatives to violence? And so the right to assist recognizes that people living under oppression, whether it's dictatorship, authoritarianism, foreign military occupation, colonialism, apartheid, that people have a right to resist. And they have a right to challenge oppression, but they will say that, you know, we know empirically that the most effective way to resist is through active nonviolent means. And so given the empirics that not only is civil resistance more effective than armed struggle in achieving its ultimate goals and that it tends to lead to more democratic and peaceful societies, how can outside actors use various tools at their disposal to provide assistance to the? activist campaigns and movements. And the grounding, the international legal grounding, although Peter and Hardy will say that this is not meant to be something that the United Nations Security Council debates. And so their their intent is much more for it to be sort of a bottom-up grassroots effort so that the decision-making doesn't come down to veto power. And so they just mainly want to introduce R2A, if you will, as a norm that amplifies amplifies and breathes life into international human rights to begin with. So people have freedom of assembly association speech. They have the right to receive that assistance, whether information, educational materials, diplomatic support when they're engaging in nonviolent protests. So I think that was kind of the intent in the spin that outside actors in turn have the right to be able to provide assistance to non-state actors. Clearly, in international law, there's a distinction between governments and non-state actors. I think R2A is, comes down more, you know, more strongly supports the right of non-state actors to provide material, non-material assistance to nonviolent campaigns and movements. It's probably shakier, let's say, for foreign governments or for government actors. But I think it's just meant to be a paradigm shift and to expand the global imagination about how outside actors using a variety of tools can incentivize the use of nonviolent means, in this case, nonviolent resistance to advance rights, freedoms and challenge oppression. So that was the main intent.
1: Well, I think it's a great intent, and we're on so much better legal grounds when we're beyond military force. So we've moved to a much better conversation, I think, a really important one to take forward. But we still have an issue here that I think international lawyers can help support what is so positive about this right to assist the R2A, and that's around this doctrine of non-intervention. It is the paired doctrine with self-determination. So we always are on somewhat fraught ground. We have to be extremely careful when outside groups of any kind from a community are wanting to support, as we all should, in global solidarity and concern for the human dignity of everyone, supporting our own human dignity. International law tries to draw a line between When we are supporting your human rights and when we're dictating our own views to you and taking away your own, the community's own sense of who they are and self-determination. So we have a few bright lines Mm -hmm. in international law. One is that there's no prohibition on humanitarian assistance. So I've written about this in the Venezuela context, you have as well, which is, of course, an ongoing, very fraught situation. But I think we're both happy to say, and you've written beautifully on the lessons learned that have supported so far what is a very difficult situation in Venezuela, but not the ultimate tragedy we're seeing in Syria, because it has not disintegrated to Mm -hmm. civil war. But I have supported any outside party's ability to Nonviolently provide food, medicine, shelter to the people of Venezuela, if that can be done. But I think you're talking with R2A about more than that. And of course, as long as it is external and it is invoking rhetorically or using words to support people through international standards of human rights law, that is always allowed. But in terms of material and other kinds of human resources and so forth, crossing an international boundary, tell me more about R2A so I can consider whether this is going to be a problem going forward.
2: Sure. So you're highlighting all the complexities associated and the nuances with R2A as kind of a new doctrine. And I, again, give a lot of credit to my colleagues, Peter Ackerman and Hardy Merriman, who were the ones who, you know, wrote the report about R2A. Well, so in terms of what are we talking about when we're talking about external assistance when it comes to nonviolent movements? First of all, it's not just material assistance to activists. So the report encompasses a whole range of different forms of outside support, with many, of them, again, focusing on indirect support that influences the enabling environment. So how can different diplomatic military to military tools, for example, be used to mitigate repression targeting activists? How can those mechanisms be activated when people are peacefully protesting and violence is being used against them? What are the tools at the disposal of governments, militaries, State Department officials to be able to challenge and mitigate repression? So there's a whole category of thinking on That area of external support. When it comes to more direct support to activists and movements, the first category is public education. So, how to support the dissemination of information, stories, empirical evidence about civil resistance and nonviolent struggles that have been used in different countries around the world just to spread awareness that there are other ways to resist oppression. So, purely public education, online training, access to this type of information. That's included in external support. And then the the category, which is maybe more where there's a blurred line, and trust me, there's debate within activists and donor communities about when material assistance to activists and movements is helpful and when is it harmful, because we know that movements thrive on legitimacy and representativeness and following their own agenda. So once you inject outside material assistance, funding and the like, that could jeopardize the legitimacy. See the sense of, you know, who's in the driver's seat, and you could create divisions and exacerbate divisions within a movement. So all of these challenges are being hotly discussed and debated amongst kind of outside actors. But the idea is that the small provision of in-kind support, so paying for office space or, you know, telephones or and being able to help activists publish signs that are needed for protests or, you know, festivals, whatever, that this type of assistance should uh-huh. be allowed under international law. And this is where there's probably going to be the most vociferous debate amongst the international lawyers.
1: We could go on, Maria, for so much longer. But what I think we've been able to do today is to identify two areas in which our two fields, international law, peace policy, need to work together. We're Absolutely, you and I, in accord that the prohibition on the use of force in international law needs to to work together, needs to be better known, better publicized, because it is the biggest support for the empirical work you've done. And it helps us move to a much more resourceful, fruitful, positive way forward for helping people everywhere to live in societies that are governed by decent and supportive regimes how that could be done better and most appropriately and in a way that is common to all communities around the globe. Perhaps I would invite R2A proponents to work more closely with international lawyers and see what we can come up with together. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to The Crockcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the Croccast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people to find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, Follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.